guys, you're listening to the Mixed Feels Podcast coming at you from NYC with your hosts, Cruz and Unco Dan. Mixed Feels explores and discusses topics meant to give our listeners a heavy dose of mixed feelings. This podcast is an extension of MixedFeels.com. They're selling our shit and can't even respect us. <laughs> she only speaks Spanish. Oh, I thought she was black. Well, she is. But you just said she's Spanish. Well, she only speaks Spanish, but she's Latina. Like Afro-Latina. Oh! Ma'am, is everything okay? She can hear you. She just can't understand you. That was a snippet from Sandra Manzanares' short film, Like Fine Silk, which has just completed its festival circuit and will be available online soon. Sandra Manzanares is an Afro-Latina writer and director born in Boston, Massachusetts, to immigrants from Honduras. In her own words, Like Fine Silk centers on the point of view of a young Afro-Latina as she's confronted with culture clashes in the intimate setting of a black beauty supply store. It illuminates experiences that are not widely familiar to the mainstream population and gives voice to often unspoken, uncomfortable misunderstandings in order to promote empathy and dialogue. We sat down with Sandra to discuss her film as well as her feelings about being Afro-Latina in the U.S., we begin by asking her about her inspiration for the film and whether or not she drew from personal experience. So what I love about your film is the amount of complexity that you're able to convey and express in such a short amount of time. But I wanted to ask, to what extent is this film kind of representative of a scene from your own life? Um, well, it's definitely completely made up scenario in terms of like what actually happens in the film it's made up also in the sense that the language barrier that the one of the protagonists and mothers facing is not something I necessarily dealt with both my parents were bilingual in different degrees um, so it I never had to like be that person to translate so that's a whole different experience that like I'm adding to it that I I didn't have to personally you know, deal with. Um, but I know a lot of that's relatable to like a lot of you know first generation or immigrant students and kids that um, do have to like kind of be the the parent sometimes and like be that ambassador um, so I wanted to make sure that I put that in I felt like it was a stronger choice but I've definitely been places where people kind of don't expect that someone who has dark skin would be speaking Spanish like as a native speaker um, but then on top of that like feeling as though um, when you do talk about it, there's like a lot of questions that come up for it. It's always sort of like you're an anomaly, even though anyone who knows the history of Latin America would know that actually the majority of enslaved people went to Latin America. And so it makes sense that Latin America would have this really diverse body of people. Um, and because the media doesn't represent it that way and they don't talk about it that way, people sort of don't ever make that assumption. Before we continue our conversation, we're going to give our listeners a little more context surrounding the problem Sandra just raised. While it is a historical fact that the transatlantic slave trade brought African people to both North and South America, many seem to have forgotten the African influence in South American culture and racial makeup. In a radio interview, Cuban-American actor Laz Alonso eloquently reminds us of this history. So Spank and I were talking earlier and, you know, just about, because you keep saying we, you know, and it's like your kind of connection with the black community, but you're Cuban. Like, I'm hard. black first. Yeah. I'm black first. So what I, I always ask, tell like, people. What, like, what, how you identify but, but yourself. Are you full Cuban? 
I'm, I'm full Cuban. I thought yeah. he was black too. I know, but every, I am black. No, here's black. Like, everyone thinks that you are like okay, your so, black so, lineage. Right, like, so you know, like, let me explain how it works. Let me explain how it works. Mm. We all come from the same root. It's just a tree with different branches. The same boat that dropped, that picked up your ancestors picked up my ancestors. Only they dropped yours off here. They, they made a pit stop in the Caribbean and dropped mine off. Mm-hmm. But, but my ancestors still dealt with slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, still dealt with being, you know, having, having their family and their lives ripped from them. And having to come back from colonialism and slavery. And, and it's not just African Americans. It's Afro-Cubans. It's Afro-Dominicans. It's Afro-Puerto Ricans. Like... All these people got to get out of their colonialized minds and stop thinking, oh, I'm not this, I'm this. Surprisingly, even with this knowledge, there are many who still believe that Latin exes do carry distinct physical traits, such as having only light skin or long flowing black hair. This is most likely due to the fact that the media tends to be Eurocentric or colorist. To provide our listeners with a real life example of colorism at work in the Latinx community, we're providing a clip of a well-known Dominican-American singer and artist named Amara La Negra, who is being told by a music producer named Young Hollywood that she'll need to change her look in order to succeed in the music industry. And just to provide some additional context, Young Hollywood is Latino, and Amara La Negra, while also being Latina, is very dark-skinned with an afro the size of her personality. Be sure to look her up after this episode. Here's the clip. Let's say we were actually to take off some and do a record, right? And I'm like, yo... I need you to look a certain way. What would a certain way look like? Like, what What do you have in mind? What would you A choose? little bit more Beyonce, a little less Macy Gray. You know, you gotta be a little bit more it. sensual. You know, the Afro thing's cool. Maybe we could do, you know what I'm saying, like a video here and there, certain looks, but, you know, maybe try something different, different looks. So, wait, I don't get it. What does that it's mean? A it's a seasonal no, thing. It's a seasonal thing. No, 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 no. See, I like this. Go ahead. What does that mean? <laughs> You can see Beyonce just like this, soul sister, the same way you can see her come in a beautiful gown, elegant, breathtaking. So I can't be elegant if I have a fro? Yeah, I guess so. A lot of people like to box me in, oh, because of my look or because I'm dark-skinned, but that doesn't make me less Latina. I'm 100% Latina and proud of it. Being an Afro-Latina, I think I, I embrace it Hold as much as Afro-Latina, elaborate. Yeah. Are you African or is that just because you have an Afro? Just because you hadn't noticed I am black. Just trying to get to know you, you know what I'm saying? Like, what made this whole, you know, Amara, black and proud, Afro thing. At the end of the day, in the music industry, they're looking for cookie-cutter poster childs. All Latinas look like J-Lo or Sofia Vergara or Shakira. So where are the women that look like myself? (laughs) You're just so intense about this whole African thing. As you could hear, the meeting with Young Hollywood doesn't go so well, and Amara La Negra walks out of the room. Later on in a separate interview, she passionately expresses her frustrations with not being considered Latina enough because of her dark skin and her hair texture. No, actually, you know, it's really sad, the fact that I even have to answer these questions, the fact that I have to feel as if I have to prove myself um, because every single part of me is being questioned just because I feel that there's a lot of ignorance when it comes to the Afro-Latino. People don't understand. Even when I read comments, like, I never knew that there were black people that spoke Spanish. I'm like, where have you been living? Under a rock? Like, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I can't even be mad at you because there really isn't a lot of Afro-Latinos doing anything on the entertainment. And if they are, they're really not talking about it. The two audio clips you just heard were of Laz Alonso and Amara La Negra expressing their frustrations with having to constantly prove and verify their identities. It's a process that many Afro-Latinos go through on a daily basis, and it isn't really talked about in mainstream conversations surrounding culture and race. 
the other day I was thinking about it, that there's a there's probably some sort of like psychological process that happens, I think, to people who always have to be explaining their identity as if it doesn't already exist. It's almost like you're basically having to valid revalidate yourself constantly. You know, so like when people sort of ask me questions and they're like really like both your parents are from this place huh i mean there's just something like very simple about being like my name is mary donovan and i'm irish and i'm white and people are just like great like you get to just be but the minute then you're like oh my name is this and my parents are from here and then people are like wait a minute i haven't seen this so like this doesn't exist to me so like for me to believe that you can exist as a full being i need some context i need some history i need some explanation and when you do that like almost every day of your life or like your entirety of your life i don't know what that process is called and i don't know if anyone's really studied it but it's exhausting sandra explores this type of social interaction in her film but also acknowledges that the underlying process is much more intersectional and complex than most realize in other words in addition to the emotional narrative Sandra was also interested in understanding the underlying physical and historical conditions for this type of social interaction to take place. In her story, Sandra not only expands on how Afro-Latinx and other underrepresented ethnic community narratives interact in the U.S., but how they do so without the presence of an overarching white narrative. Sandra asks the question, how do two Afro-Latinas, two Koreans, and two African-Americans negotiate culture, race, power, identity, generational gaps, and in the process, generate new and layered meanings of discrimination and otherness in an everyday situation. A lot of what I've talked about when I go to festivals is how whiteness and white supremacy as a concept is always in the room, even when like white people aren't present. And even in an environment like that where it's like devoid of it, the effects that it's had on oppressed people in this country and people who have less kind of like access to wealth, education, and different things than when you put them in a room together, how does that affect the way that they interact with each other and how is it divisional? And so one of the first places I could think about was abuse place because it's like you could do it, put it in a supermarket in a particular kind of neighborhood or whatever like that. But like generally speaking, if you go to the like any sort of black neighborhood and you go to a beauty supply store, the chances of seeing someone who's not black or brown in there is like very slim, right? The backdrop is also about blackness and black hair. And it's about the diaspora that then like connects the two characters into this like greater body of like what it means to be black in America and basically challenging the thought that people just constantly can make assumptions about what that might look like and what, what it should look and sound like and feel like um, and wanting to complicate that, wanting to say this like can be many different things at once. Um, but then also looking at the challenges of just like the politics of in the industry, like historically stores are owned by like majority of Korean Americans, for example. But then there's like a history of that. There's a reason why those communities have chosen industries that have been very successful for their, their families to thrive as immigrants in America. But then there's like representation because the patrons sometimes feel like they are not fully understood or that the money that they're giving to this industry isn't always coming back to support their communities. So it's kind of this like constant tension kind of between those communities and then you have someone who's like new to both of these narratives i've been going on for years you know we've talked a little bit about like the, so i mean the daughter and mother characters. yeah the daughter and mother characters like i mean the daughter probably has more of an understanding of what's happening but her mother is so new to this um american 
enterprise that she doesn't necessarily might not have all of the information available to her which is like a real thing right and it's also why there's like a lot of fragmentation between afro-latinos in america and the black community in america because like you're basically taking someone who has like very little like historical context of what american um, race is like and the history and then they're being assumed as black american but then they don't have the history so then when they're coming up against certain things they they feel disconnected and they feel connected in other ways and so there's like this kind of like interesting situation that's happening everything sandra just mentioned makes sense African-American history begins in the 17th century, while Korean-American migration starts in the early 1900s. So these two ethnic groups have had some time to interact. Over time, Korean entrepreneurs began to notice the demand in the black American hair sector, and eventually cornered the market. Which is why Korean-owned beauty supply stores are so prevalent and also why historically, there has been cultural tension between the African-American and Korean-American communities. Latinos have now been deemed as the fastest growing and largest minority group in America, and many are quickly having to adapt to the pre-existing American racial and cultural landscape. Like Fine Silk skillfully captures a moment where all three ethnic groups and all three histories intersect and interact. Mami, ¿qué pasó? ¿Qué, qué decía? What is this? What are you speaking? Spanish. How much is it? You said 115? An 11 cents. 115 y 11 centavos. Spanish, but she's black. She's from Costa Rica. Oh, I figured with the skin, the kinky hair, you know, like uh, Africa, not Spanish. ¿Qué está diciendo el chino? What, what did you say? You called me a chink? No, no, sir. She's just saying you're Chinese and Spanish. He was just asking about where you're from. I mean, él solo quería saber de dónde usted. I'm Korean. I know. I mean, I don't know. I'm sorry. She'd get along better if she practiced on her English, you know? Hey, are you guys done yet? Almost. Sorry. This soundbite was taken from the climax of the film, where an intense encounter occurs between the Korean shop owner and Eva's immigrant mother. Eva's mother is unable to speak English, which frustrates the Korean shopkeeper, who is also an immigrant himself. In order to clear up the growing miscommunication, Eva finds herself juggling various identities all at once. As a Latina, translating for her mother, as a black woman, interpreting how others perceive their physical traits, and as an American, keeping the peace between the various cultures and histories swirling around her. At one point, it seems to be an unfair burden that Eva is the only one in the room inhabiting multiple perspectives at once, while everyone else remains firmly planted in their own. You just wouldn't think that the beauty supply store would be a place where, where you would find where a single character is acting as like a like a universal like plug adapter or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's like the Korean store owner, the uncle and his niece, and then like, you know, the daughter's mother, and then the sassy woman, and then the other woman that was in line with the straight hair. Like they're all, they've all plugged into the daughter character and she's the one that's like keeping it all together. Yes. And so it doesn't entirely just like devolve into chaos, right? And like pointing fingers like, oh, you call me Chino or Chink or whatever, and like all that. And you feel the weight of that responsibility on the daughter's character. Yeah, can you tell me more about that? Like, what was it like to write that scene? How much do you identify with that, daughter, that, that daughter's character, especially that specific kind of moment, the energy in that moment? Like, I think to some extent I can, maybe that was me like, translating a feeling of like how I feel in terms of 
having to be a lot of things at the same time, um, having to kind of keep a lot of perspectives in mind at the same time. I think it's made me more empathetic, I think, to when I see people being misunderstanding, but at the same time, it can be frustrating to feel as though you're constantly having to adapt when other people can kind of stay and like cemented in sort of a one perspective and that you're kind of being dragged into like, well, I'm proof that you can think this way or, or it can be this other way or that it can be both at the same time. And so I think like struggling with that has always been um, kind of a thing for me in general in terms of like, what do I call myself when people ask me what I am and like, how do I identify? And then just like where, I mean, I fill out forms all the time where I'm like, I don't really know what this is and it depends on how the form is constructed and who's collecting it and how much they really care so I don't really know like sometimes I'm just like this isn't really reflective of anything you just want to have something that you can say xyz but my experience is so like individual that it's it can feel really random there's a lot of what you're seeing right now is like a lot of boxes will just ask about your ethnic identity if you're Latino, like if in any capacity, but they never ask about your racial identity if you're Latino, which is like a weird kind of thing because um, I recently did, it was like a Latino magazine in Boston where I'm from and they contacted me because I was screening in Boston and they were like, we'd love to do like coverage on it. And so there was a woman from Latin America and I'm not, can't remember what country she's from, but like on the phone, I was like, I can tell you're not black because she had all of these questions about like, so what is it with black hair? And I was like, okay, like clearly she grew up in Latin America where there was probably someone of like Afro descent in her community, but she seemed so removed from the political understanding of like what black hair has been considered, um, how it's been categorized and treated and like just the efforts that black women have to go through to sort of even compete in like America and like in the workforce or like school. So there's just so many things, right? You could write books and books and books on black hair. Even though Sandra and this woman are both Latinas, there was a feeling of exclusion or a gap in lived experience, specifically in regards to the topic of hair. Sandra and this woman could not entirely relate with one another despite both being Latinas because the woman did not share the deeply painful history and experience that comes with having Afro-textured hair in a Western society that values straighter, flatter styles. The history of black hair in the United States is long and complex. Just as Afro-textured hair has been stigmatized in the United States, it has also been seen as a negative physical trait across the globe. The curly and natural hair movement is one of the latest attempts to reject Eurocentric beauty standards and to encourage women of African descent, or any woman with curly hair, to celebrate their natural hair texture. Elizabeth Acevedo, a New York-born and raised Dominican poet, beautifully captures the Eurocentric standards of beauty within her own community in her poem titled Hair. Here is a clip of part of her poem. They say Dominicans do the best hair. They can wash Set, flatten the spring in any lock. But what they mean is we're the best at swallowing amnesia. In a cup of morir soñando. Die dreaming because we'd rather do that than live in this reality caught between orange juice and milk, between reflections of the sun and whiteness. What they mean is, why would you date a black man? What they mean is, a prieto cocolo. What they mean is, why would two oppressed people come together? It's two times the trouble. What they really mean is, have you thought of your daughter's hair? 
And I don't tell them that we love like sugar cane, brown skin, pale flesh, meshed in pure sweetness. The children of children of fields, our bodies curve into one another like an echo. And I let my kernel of curls blanket us from the world. Our children will be beautiful of dust skin and diamond eyes, hair of reclamation. How I will braid pride down their back so from the moment they leave the womb, they will be born in love with themselves. My mother tells me to fix my hair. And so many words remain unspoken because all I can reply is you can't fix what was never broken. I feel like that was where the divide is, right? Because it's like, yeah, we could both be like, yes, proud Latinas. But then she's like, so what's all this with like, what's the big deal with hair, you know? And then it's like, okay, we're, we're very different. And now I have to like go back and like ex re-explain history and then come at it from like so many different angles just to kind of get you to understand like the, the depth of it. But then it's like, I could talk to some black Americans who've like had generations of families that are based in America. But then the minute I'm like, oh yeah, this is like the immigration process that my parents went through to get here. It's like, they cannot relate to that, right? So it's like a very different situation. As Laz reminds us, Afro-Latinos have gone through a similar experience as African-Americans in that their ancestors were also slaves, brought to the West against their will, and they also face the racism that comes with being black in America. We all come from the same root. It's just a tree with different branches. But on top of all that, many Afro-Latinos are also recent first and second generation immigrants. And as we well know, this country is plenty conflicted over immigration. This extra layer of complexity is what Sandra so deftly shows us in her film, that the Afro-Latino immigrant experience carries its own unique challenges and hardships, such as language barriers, mistaken cultural identity, and having to constantly explain yourself. So yeah, I think it was like, as many times as you can be like, this is my experience, someone's always going to be like, yes, we're like both proud and something, but it's going to be like to a limitation because they're not going to have the full context of where you're coming at it from. In short, for those with dark brown skin and Afro-textured hair, the term Latina is insufficient to describe the lived experience of also being Black in a country where people of African descent have been disenfranchised for decades. At the same time, simply calling oneself Black and nothing more would negate an entire culture, language, and sense of belonging in a country that is becoming more nationalist by the day. In sum, Afro-Latina can be a semantic attempt to unify both racial and ethnic experiences into one unique perspective. The two main characters in the film are Ava and her mother. They are played by Tiffany and Shirley Campbell, an Afro-Latina mother-daughter acting duo, each with dark skin and locked hair. According to Sandra, since the stereotype of Afro-Latinas is to have lighter skin and longer free-flowing hair, she made a conscious decision to challenge common perceptions of Afro-Latinas even further by casting these two women. The decision to cast two Spanish-speaking actresses with prominent African heritage was a deeply intentional and political one, which Sandra hoped would visually disorient the viewers' pre-established categories. It was interesting because when we did get um, the cast that we'd got, it helped to play off the fact that both of them had locked hair naturally, and it sort of changed the nature of even just how we see Afro-Latinas and you're just disoriented like I remember I showed it to a professor and he just was like wait what are they like are they speaking Portuguese they, the assumption wasn't that 
And I was like, yeah, the minute that you see their images come on the screen, and you're like, oh, I guess I know who they are. And then you're like, oh, wait, no, I don't know. Where are they from? Who are they? Like, I'm confused. I think it makes a choice. That's like an extreme visual choice that can be very confusing to people. And I think it's great because I'm like, I walk down the street and I assume anybody can be anything. Because that's like where I sort of, that's like my upbringing is like to understand that. But other people would be like, oh, I know exactly who you are, you know? And then the person's like, no, I'm not. And then the people are just like, what? Blew my mind, you know? Having to constantly explain and verify your identity is existentially exhausting. How much interpersonal identity colonization can one take before one's had enough? Sandra captures the existential exhaustion this creates in Ava from the opening shot. Ava and her mother are sitting in the car about to enter the store. There's a pause, as if Ava knows what's about to go down, and she wants to avoid it with all of her being. Mami, ya le dije que trajera tarjetas de crédito, es menos confuso. Sí, pero yo siempre pago con efectivo, Eva. Es más seguro. Tarjetas. ¿Qué dijo? Nada. In the opening line, when the main character talks about, she just says, like, I hate this, right? I think there's an element of, like, there's an element of, like, shame. Like, I think that what she really wants to do is, like, be kind of in the cut, right? She doesn't really want to be the focal point of attention which is like the actual thing that she gets right like so at first it's like god like can you just like bring a credit card like or use a credit card for once like then it'll just be simple we'll get it in and out no one will notice right and then really it's like a symbol of the thing she doesn't want people to notice is like that they have this complex kind of identity right and that like she doesn't want to have to like be in the middle of it or like explain herself but like that's the thing that she ends up having to do at the end of it and so something that people might see is very simple. Like everyone just goes to get hair products, but like that's a good, very like political decision about like where and how you're doing that. There's a lot of choices being made and a lot of like political kind of like, I think processes that you need to go through to decide what choices am I gonna make for myself? Where am I putting my dollar? How am I using that dollar? Are the things healthy for me? Are they supportive of my community, of my self-identity? So there's like a lot that, you know, she sort of leaves like, you know, discombobulated, I think at the end of it. But I think she feels like, yeah, this is kind of what I was afraid of and it happened and like, but I'm still, we're still standing. Those of us with complex, non-singular identities are familiar with this struggle of having to inhabit multiple spaces at once, see from multiple perspectives, and be empathetic to all. Often it means holding our tongue, being patient and strategic, to allow others to play out their all-too-familiar prescripted biases. Sandra leaves us with a sense that many of us do not understand what multiculturalism really means, even in a place like New York City, where one can still manage to find pockets of coexisting diverse cultural groups. She does not offer us a definition, but instead reminds us that merely coexisting is not enough. Last time we spoke, you had mentioned how, like, we're not really all as multicultural as we think we are. So I feel like, yeah, the film challenges that passively accept the notion that we live in a multicultural society. But there are clear divides and differences that are rarely, if ever, bridged. But these conflicts are usually between identities that have, like, clear differences, like black and white, um, the left and right, you know, so on and so forth. But in your film, you take a closer look at difference. Someplace like New York, 
seems very multicultural and probably is relative yeah, to other places. Yeah. yeah. But it a lot of times it seems more and more like just a bunch of isolated, separate individuals that kind of live among each other, don't really interact. Tell me more about about what inspired, I guess, from like a from that that perspective, from like perspective of challenging this notion of that we're multicultural. Here's the thing: there's like more access to enclaves because there's just there's just so many people. Those enclaves exist in other cities; they're just much smaller, right? Um, but what I've noticed here is that there's an element of being able to walk by people and not know their stories, but somehow walk around and be like, we're one New York City. And I'm like, are we? I'm like, you. people walk by each other all the time. And there's a way to ignore it. And that has to do with like racing class and all kinds of other things. And I feel like um, unless people really push themselves to bridge out, like they they could you could live in New York City and be like, yeah, like I love it. It's so diverse. And like, but your world is actually not. Right, like the way that you actually understand every day someone else's experience that has nothing to do with you is not right. And so, just because you take the train and you're taking the seat of Bedside does not mean that you understand like what it means to be X number of things, right? Um, so yeah, I think that that when I came here, I was kind of like very critical of the way that other people see other parts of the country because I was like, at least those people can say, I don't see enough of blah 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 but then you're in an environment like New York City and it's like people think that just seeing it in passing is enough to give them a sense of empathy for another human being's experience but really like the average person is just living in their same routine um, on their same like whatever whatever their like you know narrative says that they're going to be doing that's what they do so if they go to you know spin after work and then they go home and they have cocktails at like a nice like gentrifying bar like that's their reality and they don't actually have to empathize with anyone else experiencing each other from afar and then retreating to our own cultural enclaves to share our experiences whether in person or on social media does not foster the exchange of ideas and thought necessary to transform and elevate how we relate to one another Whatever sense of multiculturalism most of us assume exists is merely one that conflates the appearance of diversity for the wholesale acceptance of differences. It's diversity without bodies. As Sandra alludes to, empathy plays an important part in moving beyond mere coexistence. Too often, and unfortunately, what we feel as empathy towards others is merely the fears we see for ourselves. This is empathy for the idea of oneself as the other, but not that person him or herself. Actual empathy requires courage. It's a force that moves you towards another, not one that keeps you in self-isolation. Not towards an idea of a person, but someone real, material, and embodied. Like Ava, not many of us want to be the center of attention, and especially when it's not profitable. Maybe some of us want to avoid the shame that comes with having to qualify and explain ourselves constantly, but perhaps being thrust into a momentary spotlight where one has to stand up or knee down to shed light on the complexity of a situation is a bare minimum requirement for actual change to begin to take shape. So for me, part of this film was like talking about how like a lot of different groups 
are dealing with this on many different levels. First, I wanted to start with like the experience that I understood being like an Afro-Latina, but then on top of that, like expanding that and saying, well, a lot of these different groups are intersecting in different communities. Um, they all have their own stories that they need to tell. Um, so it's not as simple as just saying like, this story matters, but you know, these other stories are also part of the conversation and because they are interacting daily, um, it's important for me to see that. And when we started showing the film, I would get a lot of people come up to me after the fact and talk about how this was like their daily experience. Whenever they go to the store, like they've seen it happen, they've been through it, they do this for their parent, they've experienced discrimination, whatever it is, you know, like there was like all these kind of connections to it. So I felt like it definitely strikes a chord with people who don't really get to tell um, their perspectives and be like, I am, I can be this and this and many other things and I could be working through my English and I could be misunderstanding other people and I could be judgmental but also being judged. Like there's like all these nuances to like living in the U.S. as like a person of color, an immigrant. That wraps up our conversation with Sandra Manzanares. As always, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next interview with Caroline Mariko Stucky, a Swiss-Japanese filmmaker based in New York City. Caroline talks about growing up mixed in Switzerland, the difficulties of being gay in Japan, and how these experiences are expressed in her films. And remember, this podcast is an extension of our site mixfields.com. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to write us at admin at mixfields.com or hit us up on our Instagram pages. We look forward to sharing more with you on our next episode. Until then.